So the passage that Matthew just read is from Exodus, the end of Exodus chapter 19. And um, it's the passage right before Charlton Heston comes down from Mount Sinai <laughs> with the Ten Commandments in hand. Is that not the version that you saw growing up? It's a version that I knew as a kid. I grew up in a fairly conservative, but very loving family. And my parents decided at an early age to homeschool my brother and I because liberals were taking over public education with things like sexual education and the Clintons were about to establish a one world government. And right, that was my childhood. And needless to say, my exposure to different forms of media was quite restricted compared to many. You know, Ron DeSantis is only 44 years old. He's four years older than I am. And um, that means my family banned Disney when Ron was still in grade school. <laughs> True. But that said, I had a number of favorite movies growing up, all of which were on VHS. And the top was probably Cool Runnings. Yes. Right? And after that, um, for better or worse, John Wayne and the Alamo. As a kid, I was fascinated with the story of David Crockett on and, and then The Ten Commandments, which are often essence. It's one of those movies that I would watch over and over and over again for whatever reason. I was fascinated by it. And I think I just about ran that VHS tape out, right? And then as a grown-up, I started to think about that passage and a whole bunch of other passages in very different ways. In 1998, a renowned Jewish studies scholar named Baruch Halpern from Penn State was quoted in Christianity Today as saying, the actual evidence concerning the Exodus resembles the evidence for the unicorn. And from an archaeological perspective, that's absolutely true. Richard Elliott Friedman of the University of Georgia is one of the preeminent biblical scholars in the world today. And he argues that Exodus, whether fact or fiction, became the starting point for the formation of monotheism and the defining concept of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Friedman also argues that the Exodus precipitated the foundational ethics of loving one's neighbor, including strangers, as oneself. And so in a way, whether we see this narrative in the Bible as fact or fiction, it is a spiritual heritage, not only to the Jewish people, but a spiritual heritage to us as Christians. The sermon series we're in is called Rooted, Faith Ancestors, Their Stories and Ours. But what are we to do when we learn that the stories of our faith ancestors may have indeed Story. Historian Colin Woodward, who's an American historian, maybe brings it into perspective in a 2021 article in Smithsonian Magazine where he argues that America's founding myths helped to bring a sense of nationhood not around organic ties but by commitment to a set of ideals. And he wrote that national mythology can indeed bring unity, but it can also give people the sense that God loves our people more than any other. And that the violence of a nation was somehow ordained or blessed by God. That's what national myths are for. 
so that we can bless our leaders and forebears and say that God blessed them and that God blesses us more than any other. Fast forward about 2,000 years from today's scripture text and consider, for instance, the great mathematician, Hypatia of Alexandria. Anybody know of Hypatia from Alexandria? Hypatia was an only child, and her father was the head librarian at the Library of Alexandria. Now, Hypatia's scholarship surpassed that of her father's, and she became, she became the most influential and the most renowned scholar and professor at the university in Alexandria and the head of the Library of Alexandria. And her advances in mathematics and in astronomy are still used for calculating latitude and longitude on ships today. She made advances in long division that are still taught in classrooms around the world. She was a world authority on the teachings of Plato, and people would send their children from all over the world to study under her. And she was often sought out by rulers for her wise counsel. But then there was Cyril, the Christian bishop of Alexandria. And he was set on ridding the city of every person and every faction that did not subscribe to his narrow views theology. In the church, the church of the Vixie has long sanitized Cyril as one of the church fathers. Patriarch of the Christian faith and celebrated his contributions to Christology because he taught that Jesus was fully God and fully human. And if you learn about Cyril in a church history class at university or even a seminary, that's about all you'll hear about Cyril. But Cyril also was in charge of a band of about 500 monks who burned synagogues, forced the conversion of many in the city of Alexandria, tore down temples of other faiths. But the biggest threat, perhaps, to Cyril's rule in the church's political power in Alexandria was a powerful, intelligent woman named Hypatia, and a world-renowned library. And so, in the month of March, in the year 415, a band of Christian fanatics assaulted Hypatia while she was riding on her chariot through the city. They drove her into a church, beat her, stripped her, and tortured her to death in the church. And when she was dead from this horrific event, they took her bones and what was remaining of her body, and they burned her remains in the street as a mock pagan sacrifice. Cyril, you see, was so focused on doctrinal purity and enforcing dogma, he forgot the whole love your neighbor thing. And within a few years of Hypatia's demise, the library at Alexandria had been dismantled. Estimates put the volumes at nearly 700,000 
books, scrolls, burn and destroy. So we could almost make a t-shirt, right? Religious fundamentalist and fanatics threatened by gifted women and banning books and sports. The great irony exists too. You see that many of the same ilk as Cyril would force every public school in the classroom today to display the Ten Commandments. So fast forward another 2,000 years, give or take. In 1894, there's a syndicated news article that goes out in newspapers across the nation, and on the front page of the New York Times is a story titled, The Bloodiest Vendetta. And the story recounted the saga of a family feud in railroad, Palmer, Louisiana. Yeah, really, hometown. Two families named the Tuggle family and the Ramsey family had been in a blood feud for years, and 14 people had died in that feud. The paper had sketch drawings from forensic artists depicting the main characters of these families, one of which was Hamilton, or Hamp, Tuggle, who was shown in the sketch to be standing with a gun drawn in the middle of the street. He happened to be my papa's great-grandfather. And he was one, in the 1890s, one of the most wanted men by the U.S. Marshals and the Texas Rangers. And by all accounts, he was on the lam, running from the law for the rest of his adult life. In the last sentence of this lengthy article, which was on the front page of the New York Times, is that my papa's granddad was hunting his adversary in the swamps of Louisiana, and they were both being hunted by the U.S. How do we deal with the faith of our ancestors? The stories of our own families, the stories of people in our faith tradition. Sometimes those stories are just disturbing. They're troubling. It's not something necessarily to be proud of, right? But we learn these stories and we hold them knowing that there's a lot that we can learn. I think a good portion of what's in the Bible is there to serve as a warning to everybody who reads it. You see, the faith of our ancestors and their stories are wrapped up in our story. When my papa died, we found this Bible in his possessions, and my mother gave it to me. And there's a note in the front of it from his. Sunday school class that he was the teacher of. And they had presented him with this Bible at one point. And tucked in the pages of this Bible, I also found that bag, and I'm not going to get them out. But it's obituaries from newspapers that were clipped in the mid 1900s in the 20th century from people in my family that had died. So somehow, my family went from some of them being the worst outlaws in the world to my papa being a Sunday school. 
So somewhere along the storyline, there was redemption. Somewhere along the storyline, somebody found faith. Faith of our ancestors is wrapped up in our story, and our story is wrapped up in theirs. And if we look back, whether it's 125 years or 2,000 years or 4,000 years ago, we find that many of the things that they faced might be similar to some of the stuff that we deal with in our own time. And it would be easy to stand in judgment of these folks. Now, they've been up their faith and to view their beliefs for the times that they lived in as somehow backwards or even quaint. But that would rob us of the richness and the complexity of their stories. It would rob us of the wrestling that comes when we engage with those stories and the wisdom that we might glean from encountering them. And so if you hear anything from today's scripture text, hear this, you are a treasure in the eyes of God. And maybe, like me, you were once living in bondage of some kind. In my case, it was bondage to evangelicalism, to purity culture, and all of its trappings, to expectations from family and church members about how I had to live, or what I had to believe, the box that people try to put when we consider these stories, we might find some measure of comfort in the words of the wisdom writer. There is nothing new under the sun. But we might also find comfort in the words of the psalmist.